everyone, and thanks for joining us today for this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm the Digital Media Editor at Heart, and I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Dr. Ed Nicholl from the Royal Brompton Hospital in London. Ed, many thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Ed, perhaps we could start off by getting an idea of the current roles that you have. What's your, uh, what's your main position? Yeah, so with regards to cardiovascular CT, um, I am the immediate past president of the British Society of Cardiovascular Imaging and Cardiovascular CT, and I'm currently the uh, education lead and chair of the education committee on the SECT, um, uh, on the background of, of having, a doc- having done a doctorate many years ago in the very early days of cardiac CT, and obviously being a practitioner here at the Brompton, um, where I've been practicing for over a decade in cardiac CT now. And Ed, you've just written a couple of papers actually uh, in Heart. Uh, one is an Education in Heart article, and the second one is is an original piece of research uh, entitled "The Challenges of Delivering CT as a First Line Test for Investigation of Stable Chest Pain." And all this really relates to the 2016 update of the NICE guidelines, which we have discussed a couple of times on the podcast. But I really wanted to get you in because of your unique perspective, I think, as a cardiologist um, who's also directly involved with CT and and drafting of these guidelines, and also with your insight into the wider picture in the UK in terms of how we're going to deliver all this. But perhaps we can start very briefly by uh, recapitulating the update, the 2016 update to the 2010 guidelines and the sort of two or three main things that changed in terms of how yeah. we investigate patients with recent onset stable chest pain. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, I think to be clear, I, I was not involved uh, in the actual drafting of the NICE guidelines. There was, as I'm sure many of the listeners will know, um, NICE is, is independent of the specialty, uh, but bring in expert advisors um, to keep them on track, if you like, and answer technical questions. And those were uh, Professor Carl Rebottom, a consultant cardiac radiologist down at Derriford, uh, Dr. Andrew Kelly, an obviously consultant cardiologist in Oxford, and then Professor Adam Timmis, uh, who really were the people that advised um, the NICE guideline group. But I think it's important to be clear that the uh, cost-effective analysis, which is what NICE performed, and as you say, is an update to the 2010 guidelines, uh, were very much independent, um, and they, even those three individuals did not have any direct uh, influence in terms of Uh, how the guidelines were produced. And I think that's pertinent in the sense that um, it was the process that was undertaken was very much uh, using a 70% stenosis on invasive coronary angiography as the gold standard, um, which I know is challenging to some people in 2017 and certainly was at the end of 2016. Um, but it, because it was an update, the same methodology was used in the two, as was used in the 2010 guidelines. And what were the main changes from 2010, uh, both the controversial so, and the non-controversial ones? Yeah, so, so I think, you know, the the first one, and I think probably the most controversial one, was the removal of any assessment of pretest probability in patients who presented with uh, typical or atypical anginal symptoms uh, or ECG changes suggestive of that. So those those points in terms of uh, the people who should be considered for uh, further investigation is that group I've just described. But whereas in the previous 2010 guidelines, uh, the next test were determined by your pretest probability. So if less than 10%, no test, 10 to 29%, it recommended calcium scoring and then a CT coronary angiogram depending on the calcium score, functional testing for those between 30 and 60, and then invasive angiography above 60%. Now, 
uh, they've removed all of those uh, pretest probabilities. And, and the reason for that is relatively simple. When they, they looked through uh, the patients who were previously investigated, which, as I've already said, was between sort of 10 and 90 percent, um, there were only three categories um, using either the Diamond Forrester guidelines that were used in 2010 or the updated genders guidelines, um, which were produced for the ESC. And, I, and only one of those had symptoms, which was males over the age of 80 with typical angina. And I think that's a relatively small cohort. And I think for the purposes of a national guideline that is relatively easily understood, I believe that the NICE committee decided that actually it was easy just to have a simple, if you've got the symptoms and you fit the criteria, we investigate 90% of these and have done previously anyway. So therefore, we will remove the um, the pretest probability. And I think it was also felt that, uh, sadly, as, as clinicians, we were not particularly good at actually determining uh, the, the correct um, pretest probability. And, and again, one has to remember that in rapid access chest pain clinics, there is a whole variety of professionals who are trying to make that decision, uh, whether it, uh, in some centres it could be a consultant cardiologist, in other centres could be a nurse running a rapid access chest pain clinic. So uh, I think for all of those reasons, I think the pragmatic decision was taken that actually to keep a simple um, system going forward, that, and given that we investigate so many people, that that was probably um, the, the reasons why NICE dropped that pretest probability. So that was the first major change, was the drop of the, the pretest probability assessment. So it's now based purely on symptoms and or the ECG. So, so that was the first change. I think the second uh, radical departure, obviously, was uh, the fact that they then said that the cost-effective analysis then indicated that CT coronary angiography without a calcium score was the most cost-effective uh, single test compared to all the other tests that they looked at, which included invasive angiography, uh, the different functional tests, including perfusion MR, SPECT, dobutamine stress echocardiography. And therefore, the rather radical, I think, feeling was that, you know, that one test should be the first line investigation at the time. And again, that clearly, again, has been controversial. Um, but I think, you know, and we'll come on to it in a minute, I think, you know, uh, even if one doesn't entirely agree with NICE's methodology, actually there is plenty of evidence both uh, that was available at the time and has emerged since that would suggest that that's not an unreasonable uh, thing to do, given the fact that it has such a strong negative predictive value and the vast majority of the 600,000 admissions to ED uh, or emergency departments in the UK each year, um, you know, are in people who probably don't have acute coronary syndromes or significant coronary artery disease. So, so a, a test that is one cheap and two has a very strong negative predictive value clearly was going to be a test that was going to be quite hard to, uh, to sort of compete with given the costs of the other functional imaging tests are often higher with the sensitivity and specificity of, of very respectable sort of 80 to 90%, but not the sort of 98 to 100% exclusion that you get with CT coronary angiography. So that, that really was the sort of the second main change. Um, and then, of course, that the consequence of that was obviously the, if you like, the, um, the use of both functional tests as a second line investigation only in those patients where there was an equivocal um, or um, positive uh, X, um, CT coronary angiogram. And then finally, uh, invasive coronary angiography being the third line investigation only if um, either the CT or the functional test, again, were not conclusive. So, so there was quite, it was, it's a radical shift, I think, from where we were before. But I think one has to remember that this was 
for you know was a cost effective analysis against a gold standard of invasive angiography so you know i think you know nice in my opinion certainly answered their their exam question correctly um, one could debate the methodology and i think it is being debated and, and certainly the 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 editorial uh, from steve nissen that was published in heart i think would would represent you know one spectrum of views uh, and there were others who who have felt that this was the right process all along um so I, I think yeah this is still being debated and i know the esc and the aha are both looking at their guidelines and and grappling with some of the decisions that have nice have taken and whether they feel that's justified in their own particular guideline development and let's just briefly touch on that then how do these guidelines differ from existing other societies i know the the other society guidelines you just mentioned are older uh, but yeah. what are the main differences well i think that there's a couple of important differences i think the first one is the definition of the population these guidelines um, are used for so whilst there is significant overlap between the nice guidelines the esc guidelines and the aha guidelines they are not identical so for example the esc and aha cover people with known coronary disease whereas the nice guidelines as far as CT, uh, are only applicable to people without known coronary artery disease. So that's the first important thing is actually the, if you like, the population these guidelines are, are applied to are, are subtly different, similar, but definitely not the same. I think in the European guidelines, uh, again, the, the flowchart is, is is rather more complex. There is um, they, they don't use exercise stress testing. Again, they sort of followed the UK's 2010 NICE guideline leads in, in removing that for the uh, determination of significant coronary disease, but they very much maintain uh, a more functional approach. Um, the use of routine transthoracic echocardiography is much more prevalent, uh, particularly for, for the older populations. I mean, they're similar, if you like, to the 2010 NICE guidelines, uh, but they focus much more on the use of functional imaging with CT uh, very much as reserved as a sort of second-line test. Um, and the American guidelines currently still maintain exercise tolerance testing, um, which again puts them, uh, again, a, as a different way of approaching this compared to both European and UK guidelines. So, and again, a, a focus, uh, again, reasonably heavily on, on myocardial perfusion spec imaging. And, they, and again, a lot of this, and again, one has to be mindful, I think, of the political and the accessibility context in the different countries. And, and there's no doubt in the US that, um, you know, myocardial perfusion scintigraphy, you know, is, is a predominant functional test, whereas in Europe, probably uh, echocardiography probably predominates slightly more. I think the UK is, is somewhat interesting in the sense that we, because we're not a fee-for-service um, sort of healthcare system, actually, um, that for the functional imaging, actually, it's very much more about local development rather than driven by any kind of reimbursement. And therefore, I think stress echo, SPECT and perfusion CMR, you know, probably predominate in different regions and different ways in the UK. But but as I say, you know, that's really the main differences is that the current European and American guidelines still focus fairly heavily on functional imaging fairly early in their guideline pathways. Okay, that's a, a fantastic summary. Thanks. And in terms of the, the second article you've you've um, just published in Heart about how we're actually going to deliver this very much CT-led program, um, in the abstract you mention having to increase the number of CT scans that we perform, or cardiac CT scans, by sevenfold. Can you talk a little bit about that that paper and how the data was derived and, and the main conclusions? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this first came out of a piece of work that uh, we undertook under my presidency of the BSCI and BSCCT, where we, uh, along with uh, Dr. Giles Raditi, who's the senior author on the paper you've just mentioned, um, decided that we would look at the provision of 
uh, cardiovascular CT across the UK because at that point we had just seen the the draft NICE guidelines, and and I think you know were were you know on the one hand you know pleased that obviously cardiovascular CT you know is is, is being recognised as a valuable test, but on the same hand actually you know we are acutely aware that it's still a relatively small professional community who are accredited and actually within radiology particularly cardiovascular ct is still relatively uh, underrepresented when you look at it compared to you know musculoskeletal radiology breast radiology thoracic radiology whatever it may be so so clearly um you know the small community of of expertise that we've got in the uk is not as it stands in 2017 or now 2018 uh, necessarily going to be sufficient to deliver the kind of demands that were likely to be placed on us. So one of the first things we did uh, was we went away and we looked at obviously the data that NICE had used in terms of rapid access chest pain numbers and actually if the majority of those went on and had a CT coronary angiogram, how many would we need to do? And, and the NICE guidelines were, um, state that there's about 120,000 rapid access chest pain clinic uh, um, activity per year in England. Um, so we calculated a lower band figure and made some assumptions about what that would mean for Scotland, Wales um, and Northern Ireland. And then to come up with, if you like, an upper band, because, of course, you, own, you don't only get referrals from chest pain clinics. You've got the emergency department. You'll have referrals from, you know, the physicians or people discharged from AAUs. We looked at the Scott Heart data and then along with the BSIS data in terms of how many diagnostic angiograms were performed for stable angina, we came up with an upper bound. So basically the lower bound, we, we looked at a national increase of 300%. So a threefold increase would be required just to meet the chest pain clinic. Uh, criteria and it's between seven and eight fold uh, if you use the the, um, the Scott Heart data. So so you can see there is a huge challenge there in terms of you know the required numbers to deliver uh, the nice guidelines in full, if you like, if it was taken up uh, in every hospital in the way that you know nice suggest should be considered. So you know that that's really how we sort of went about it. And, and as I say with Giles, then we worked with uh, industry partners uh, to say right, where are your scanners? How capable are those scanners? Because you know my view, scanners are very much like personal computers. You know you, you can buy. Uh, a gaming computer, but you don't necessarily have to play games on it, or you can buy a computer that probably wouldn't be adequate to play high-end computer games on. And CT scanners are exactly the same. And essentially, you can buy a scanner that is cardiac capable, but you may not actually have got the software or be using the scanner to do cardiac um, work on. Or you may have a scanner that's actually not recommended. And again, NICE a number of years ago came up with a couple of guidelines where they suggested that 64 slice uh, multi-detector CT was the minimum standard and I think even that would be a push for all comers particularly if heart rate control was an issue Mm. Um, so we went out and looked at what the what if you like what the sort of the real estate was what the equipment was and we also looked at those people who were accredited so we looked at both the British Society of Cardiovascular CT and the International Society of Cardiovascular CT to see who had accredited um, and, and we, we ended up with just over 300 people who've got accreditation in cardiac CT now accepting that not everybody that does cardiac CT is accredited uh, you know there is a limitation there but even so you can see with a population of 300 where less than 30 of those were accredited at level three who were often the trainers you can see that you've one got an equipment gap and two you've got a significant training gap um, on the background, I think importantly, and, and people will have noted fairly recently in, in the papers, I suspect that of a radiology service in the UK that is generally uh, under significant pressure 
understaffed um, and with, you know, struggling to meet the general radiology requirements. And now here we are uh, in cardiology asking for essentially if we were to deliver in full that another 350,000 scans or approximately one in seven scans would be a CT coronary angiogram. So a massive challenge for all of us. I mean, are there any Absolutely. any solutions apart from, of course, training more uh, radiologists in cardiac CT and cardiologists in cardiac CT, which is not clearly an instant fix? Any other te- yeah. technological solutions you can think well, of? Well, I, I think, I think, yeah. I mean, I think that just to pick up that point, I mean, I think there are. I mean, clearly the there is going to be a requirement, and again, I'm working with both the British Society and the US Society to develop online resources. I mean, as you will be aware, and many of the listeners will be aware, uh, you know, to go on a level two course at the moment costs you certainly four figures, and and they are they only tend to accommodate ten to fifteen people per course, which which clearly is is not going to deliver the requirement we need. So I think the utilisation of a sort of online offering at that kind of level will be important. So I think the technology use just in terms of of that um, way of delivering education, but that's not a small undertaking, as you say, will not happen overnight. But I think also, you know, one also has to look at what's on the horizon with regards to uh, adjunctive um, advanced analytics, I guess you would say. Um, But again, there will be a training requirement for this. And and I specifically talk, I guess, about sort of the potential role of fractional flow reserve uh, and potentially perfusion imaging, um, although that is maybe slightly less advanced currently. Um, And pretty much a, a couple of months after NICE made a comment on the assessment of stable chest pain. They also did a technology assessment uh, on uh, heart flows, um, CTFFR. And, and, and for the listeners who don't know, heart flow is, is a specific company and it's somewhat unusual for uh, NICE to comment on a particular vendor's technology. However, it is currently the only technology that has an evidence base that I think really allows any kind of detailed assessment. There are some more simplistic uh, one-dimensional as opposed to the 3D heart flow models that are being developed by a number of vendors, but but they are in relatively early in development with a sort of lack of uh, randomized control studies or, or, or data that, that heart flow have for their 3D models. So, and, and actually, you know, NICE's um, conclusions to that was actually the implementation of um, CTFFR or heart flow CTFFR in the pathway has the potential to lead to cost savings of around 200, 215 pounds per patient. And that's based a lot on Ronak Rajani's work um, with heart flow. And again, I know Ronak probably spoke about that on his podcast uh, a number of months ago. Um, The challenge, however, really uh, is that, and that all sounds fantastic. I think the challenge really is the fact that the way that the funding for heart flow is currently is that you, the radiology department will get paid for the scan the cost of doing the heart flow FFR analysis is more than you get paid for the scan, and the saving is made in the reduction of invasive angiography. But of course, that's normally in the cardiology budget. So unless you're paid in terms of a block contract where you can do CTFFR in lieu of more expensive invasive angiography, uh, the figures don't really add up currently. So, so that's the, the sort of the impasse that we currently find ourselves in, uh, and people are trying to work with commissioning groups and STPs to work out how we can kind of square that particular funding circle. But there, there's no doubt that that potentially would uh, reduce uh, downstream investigations or maybe make downstream investigations more appropriately, but it's probably not going to reduce the demand for uh, the CT in the first place. So so I think we, we do have some real problems in terms of delivery today. Um, but actually, again, NICE's resource impact um, statement would suggest that the NHS could save something in the region of uh, 15 to 20 million pounds per year 
if the knife guidelines were implemented in full, and that would be because of the reduction in invasive angiography and what they would regard as more expensive functional tests. And uh, just to finish, does that um, recommendation or assessment by NICE of the cost saving you just mentioned, does that mean using existing scanning technology rather than you know, buying another 200 CT scanners? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, NICE don't comment on that. And I mean, that is one of the biggest challenges in terms of NICE's cost effectiveness analysis in terms of the resource impact is that you, of course, have to have the, the adequate technology. And, and you, you know, the technology of FFR works pretty much regardless of what scanner you've got, mm. as long as it is of optimal image quality. And by that, I mean, no step artifacts. Um, so that as long as they can do the, the boundary detection, which is essential for all computational flow dynamics, then actually the technology is extremely robust. And, and, and I, you know, I'm absolutely uh, sure that despite the fact that it's still a, an evolving technology, it is, it is an exciting technology that's based on sound engineering principles. And I think, you know, the data that has been produced today, I think, you know, would support that. And I think, you know, NICE is an independent body. Uh, again, I think, you know, are not minded to to make bold statements like this unless they're absolutely convinced the technology works. But as I say, you know, yes, if you are going to go down the CT route, you know, you may well require, even if it's not a better scanner, often an additional scanner. Um, and if you're going to get an additional scanner, probably a fairly good one and at the cost of anywhere between half and one and a half million pounds. Of course, you know, you have to have a business case and an economic argument to to support that um, and, and that again is another challenge locally for all of us who who would like to see these um, guidelines brought in um, you know and, and I think you know it will happen but I think you're looking at a five to ten year um, sort of development nationally in the UK um, and, and different centers will proceed at different speeds and that will often be one down to uh, whether cardiologists particularly believe um, in the data and, and how much exposure they've had previously uh, and I guess what the local provision already is. I mean if you're in a centre that has a very well established functional imaging department and no access to cardiovascular CT you're probably going to be um, behind others where there's already an existing CT service that could be expanded relatively easily um, you know and I think there's going to be some real variability which we will of course track as the National Society over the next few years but I think you know just linking it into sort of the current uh, drivers so getting it right first time or GERFT which many people will be aware of now certainly the chest pain pathway and the role of the different techniques recommended is one of those areas that uh, both Sarah Clark and Simon Ray as the president and incoming president of the BCS uh, are involved in and are looking at. Um, the challenge we've got, of course, is this crosses uh, different professional silos in terms of radiology and cardiology, and, and that will just add an additional layer of, of challenge for all of us going forward. Brilliant, Ed. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, and uh, thank you very much for your time. What I'll do is put links uh, to your various heart papers and also links to the previous podcast where we've discussed this issue. And it certainly will be interesting, as you say, to see whether the other societies, the ESC, AHA, CC, follow suit and uh, adopt some of these uh, similar recommendations. Thanks very much for your time, Ed. My pleasure. Thank you.